I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million dollars. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Reverend Sylvester Graham had a unique perspective on sexual behavior. Graham claimed that promiscuity had a lot to do with a person's diet. While his belief may seem like a stretch, in the mid-1800s, medicine had barely advanced past bleeding patients to remove whatever ailed them. Graham connected diet and sex while recovering from a long-term illness in 1826. He spent considerable time thinking about immoral behavior and its root causes— Though ideals of abstinence before marriage were nothing new to his peers, Graham noticed changes in the American diet and in people's opinions about sex, and he believed the two were connected. Graham began to preach that a diet filled with fats and meats and refined flour took a toll on one's body and soul. That those who ate these foods were often prone to many illnesses and were generally more unhealthy. He reasoned that the more immoral someone was, the more the body suffered. He and others thought sex should be used for procreation and nothing more. So, in the eyes of the church, an orgasm was required for men during sex, but not women. And that was part of the problem. Uh, Women were beginning to stand up for their own points of view. Graham's overzealous preaching incited an angry mob of women to violence in 1834, when he tried lecturing them on chastity, a concept they felt they had a fine grip on all on their own. Thank you very much. Worried that sexual activity was rampant and harmful, he even urged married couples to cut down on sex. To help curb the urge, Graham suggested a diet high in fiber, fruit, vegetables, and whole grains. Meat should only be eaten in small proportions, and no more than twice a day. 
his statements angered butchers who made their living on Americans' growing meat consumption. He began styling himself as Dr. Graham, and he insisted that smoking and drinking should also be avoided. A food should be bland, no spices to wake any desires, not even pepper. Food shouldn't even be physically warm. The more stimulating the food, the higher the sexual appetite. In addition to diet, he preached that drinking clean water, getting plenty of sunshine, exercising, keeping up personal hygiene, and wearing comfortable clothing also reduced carnal cravings. Given the changes in people's diets and women's rights, Graham concluded that men could no longer control their urges. To save them from sin and ill health, he devised a coarse-ground whole wheat flour to promote well-being and control those urges. Stores began carrying Graham's flour. Devotees wrote to Graham thanking him for curing a wide range of physical and mental health issues. Some all-male boarding houses began enforcing his hygiene and exercise regime and served the men crackers made with Graham's flour. They contained no sugar or fat and were usually softened by soaking or boiling to make them more edible. In 1838, Oberlin College incorporated the flour into their meal planning. While Americans might have become healthier due to a better diet and more exercise, it did little to make people abstain from sex. So Graham doubled down on his efforts, which proved too much for even his most devoted followers. Graham might have faded from the public eye, but his crackers grew in popularity, though the formula changed over the years, incorporating refined flour, sugar, and fats. Today, graham crackers come in varieties like honey and cinnamon, flavors that might have the reverend spinning in his grave. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Sylvester Graham was hardly alone in having stringent views of morality. Ideas of what is moral and what is not have long been debated, especially when it comes to sex. And while our history books are full of interesting events, we rarely hear about those where sex is at the forefront. At the start of World War I, the United States had a problem. Aside from a lack of available men to fight in the war, forcing the government to implement a military draft, a large number of soldiers had a reputation for excessive drinking and promiscuity. And while rampant alcohol consumption did present an issue in health and combat, it was the sexual exploits and notoriety for sexually transmitted infections, or STIs, that concerned the government. STIs became such an epidemic among soldiers that military doctors treated more men for gonorrhea and syphilis than more commonly transmissible diseases such as measles or mumps. In fact, only influenza surpassed STIs in the number of infected soldiers. At first, the American Social Hygiene Association tried closing brothels and dance halls where they determined that antisocial venereal disease carriers worked. And instead of arresting the men visiting the brothels, they arrested the women working. Those arrested were tested and treated. Additionally, the association sought to rehabilitate weak-minded women. The association began providing other forms of recreation for the men, teaming up with the YMCA. Films like Fit to Fight attempted to educate men on the effects STIs had on their abilities as soldiers. 
But the association's initiative was unsuccessful. And in 1918, the government implemented the Chamberlain-Kahn Act, better known as the American Plan. The law stated that the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy were, quote, authorized and directed to adopt measures for the purpose of assisting the various states in caring for civilian persons whose detention, isolation, quarantine, or commitment to institutions may be found necessary for the protection of the military and naval forces of the United States against venereal diseases. They reasoned that men were only acting on their carnal urges and were hardly able to resist loose women. Uninfected men who visited brothels often came away with STIs, so to them, promiscuous women were the carriers. Soldiers who returned home and spread infections to their unsuspecting wives or girlfriends weren't considered the problem. Authorities argued that infected men were not carriers. Instead, they blamed women. The American plan gave the government and law enforcement the right to arrest, quarantine, test, and treat any woman suspected of a moral behavior. No actual proof was needed. The morning of October 31st, 1918, started like any other for Nina McCall, a 17-year-old woman living in the small town of St. Louis, Michigan. The weather forecast called for flurries the following evening, and Nina wanted to finish her errands early. She exited the post office in the town's business district, just as she'd done countless times before. Nina lived a few blocks away in an apartment she shared with her mother and brother. As she left, her eyes met with Louis Martins, the town's deputy sheriff. Nina knew the deputy fairly well. As a young teen, she'd been friends with Martin's daughter. Before she was out the door, Martin ordered her to report for inspection. Without recourse or due process, the doctor forcibly stripped and examined Nina. At first, he declared she had gonorrhea, then decided it was syphilis. Nina had no say in the matter, nor any regarding what happened next. She'd seen the placards outside other women's homes, the ones that read venereal disease in large red letters. Given that she'd never had sex, Nina was sure she couldn't possibly have an infection and insisted the doctor's findings were incorrect. The doctor, insulted that she was calling him a liar, physically threatened her. Then he treated her with arsenic. Afterward, he and the deputy forced her to sign a document acknowledging his findings. The two men informed her that she would have to spend six weeks in a detention center, where she would be subjected to more exams and treatments. Six weeks turned into three months. For Nina and thousands of other women, the reign of terror had begun. In 1918, Nina was one of 1,072 women in Michigan alone who were arrested on suspicion of immoral behavior. None were given an explanation for the perceived transgression. If the arresting officer suspected a woman of immoral behavior, his word was enough. With the American plan in place, law enforcement across the country took to the streets in what was akin to witch hunts. On February 29th of 1919, Sacramento police working in the morality squad set out to cleanse the city of immoral women. At 9.30 that morning, they arrested a Mrs. Sodfried. Within the hour, they arrested one Lena Rosarine. By noon, they arrested six women, purely on suspicion. By the end of the day, the department had 25 women in custody. The arrests had become commonplace. 
humiliated and embarrassed, most women fortunate enough to be released after the exams went home and stayed quiet about their ordeal. To do otherwise would raise eyebrows about their actions, risking shame and further humiliation. There were some women, however, who did not go home quietly. On that day in February, Margaret Hennessy and her sister walked to the meat market in Sacramento, where they planned to do some grocery shopping. The two women chatted as they made their way down the street. One officer, Ryan, approached them, and the women smiled, expecting to move past him. Ryan promptly arrested them. The two explained who they were and what they were doing. They offered identification and told the officer that if they were arrested, Margaret's six-year-old son, currently at school in a nearby convent, would have no one to care for him. Officer Ryan remained unmoved. To him, two women walking together, unchaperoned by a man, was proof of immoral behavior. He took both women to what the city referred to as the Canary Cottage, a hospital for isolating and examining women. A male doctor poked and prodded Margaret and her sister. After a lengthy gynecological exam, the doctor determined that they were free from disease. They were released, though they were still ordered to appear in court the next morning. The fact that they were free of STIs didn't clear them of the charge of acting immorally. Angry over their treatment, Margaret went to the press to defend her reputation. There's no record of whether Margaret was successful or not. A woman could be taken in for anything that raised suspicion. Some were arrested for changing jobs, eating alone at a diner, walking alone, laughing, or other acts that might appear flirtatious. No one needed proof a woman was selling sex for money. If an officer determined her behavior was unladylike, he could arrest her on suspicion of soliciting. Those determined to be diseased, uh, based purely on a physical exam, were imprisoned. The guards looked down on them, often beating them or dousing them with cold water or throwing them into solitary confinement. When interred, the women were subjected to further exams. Treatment consisted of mercury injections and oral drugs containing arsenic, standard treatments for STIs at the time. Some women were even sterilized. The American plan had plenty of political supporters, including New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia and California's Governor Earl Warren. Attorney General Thomas Watt Gregory took the time to write to each state, urging them to enforce the plan. He assured them that the American plan and the arrests were constitutional. Gregory also personally wrote to each U.S. district judge, instructing them against interfering with arrests. Across the nation, mayors and governors enthusiastically enforced the law. In Michigan, Nina's life in the Bay Center detention facility was deplorable. She and the others had no privacy. All incoming and outgoing mail was opened and read. The facility had any letters that mentioned physical or medical treatment destroyed. And the facility wasn't alone in its actions. Inmates across the nation had to sign statements granting their jailers the right to scrutinize mail. Many prohibited the women from seeing visitors. Guards threatened women with additional detention or treatments if they refused their sexual advances. The mercury and arsenic in the pills and injections made Nina ill, and she began to lose her hair. She and other women were often kept in a state of malnourishment. Every day, Nina asked to go home. Every day, the answer was no. 
until January of 1919. She was released, but was told caseworkers would watch her for the rest of her life. Knowing that so much as a smile could send her back to the detention center, Nina accepted a marriage proposal in the hopes that being a married woman might keep her safe. It did not. The woman assigned to monitor Nina was furious to learn of her marriage. Social worker Ida Peck paid a visit to Nina's ill mother and pressured her for information on Nina's whereabouts. Nina's husband, Claire Rock, saw an opportunity with his new wife, prostitution. He moved to Mount Pleasant and took Nina with him. When his plan to sell his wife to other men for sex didn't work out, he left her for another woman. Nina did her best to disappear in Detroit. She couldn't return home without subjecting herself to another investigation from Ida Peck. Given her husband's attempt to prostitute her out, Peck would undoubtedly send her back to the detention center. Abandoned and broke, Nina missed her family. She looked forward to their only connection, letters. One day, she received a letter from her mother that changed everything. A wealthy Christian scientist by the name of Elizabeth Beverly Barr Givens had visited Nina's mother and presented an opportunity. She wanted Nina to help her sue the state of Michigan and oppose the American plan. By now, women's stories had begun to creep into the press. Letters poured in to politicians and judges, demanding to know why infected men who behaved the same as women, and often far worse, were not held accountable. While sex workers were arrested and sent to detention centers for treatment, the men who paid for their services were not. Givens hired three of the state's most prominent attorneys and invited Nina to stay with her while the case and trial unfolded. In September of 1919, Nina returned to her hometown. On November 3rd, her lawyers filed the suit. While Nina and Mrs. Givens waited for the trial, set for June of 1920, Nina worked odd jobs to support herself and helped Givens around the house. The weather on June 1st proved to be as stormy as the trial. The jurors, all male, listened to Nina and other witnesses relay the horrors of her treatment and imprisonment. Nina recounted how she had been subjected to repeated exams, though she insisted that she had never been with any man before her husband. She testified that the exams were so rough that she bled afterwards. Quietly and eloquently, she told the court about the humiliation she had endured and the punishment she had received. The court listened as she told them how she'd been threatened and hunted, how her life had been ruined, all for meeting the deputy's eyes as she left the post office that winter day. The defense argued that Nina was indeed a loose woman who deserved everything that had happened to her. In the end, the jury agreed with the defense, and the judge ordered Nina to pay the defendant's legal costs. Nina and her attorneys appealed, taking the case to the Michigan Supreme Court. In 1921, the court ruled in Nina's favor. Though she'd won, the judge cautioned that her treatment and probation would have been within the state's rights had there been reasonable suspicion that she was infected. The era of the American plan was a dark time for women. Nina and tens of thousands of others like her were stripped of their dignity and denied their rights from the U.S. Constitution's Fourth Amendment, which prohibits searches and seizures without reasonable cause. The government had opened over 30 of what they called rehabilitation centers across the nation, many complete with barbed wire and armed guards. 
However, America was hardly the first to implement the arrest, examination, and detention of women. The American plan had been inspired and modeled after similar laws in European countries during World War I. Nina's story faded from public memory. She remarried and did her best to move on with her life. In 1957, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor and died at a nursing home at the age of just 56. While it would seem that Nina's victory paved the way to abolish the American plan, it had the opposite effect. The American Social Hygiene Association doubled down on their efforts against women who they believed acted immorally and were a menace to public health. Even after medical science advanced and penicillin became the standard treatment for gonorrhea, syphilis, and other sexually transmitted infections in the early 1940s, women were still harassed, arrested, and locked up for suspicion of having a venereal disease. The American plan remained in effect and remained enforceable for decades. The last detention center used to quarantine women shut down in 1953, 34 years after they first opened. Not one woman received an apology or compensation. Legislators held firm that they hadn't done anything wrong. The American plan lost steam in the 50s and 60s, partly due to lawsuits. The civil rights movement and the women's lib movement made it more difficult to round up women off the streets and punish them unjustly. Yet, even through those movements, the Chamberlain-Khan Act remained active. Women marching for civil rights in Birmingham feared being subjected to arrests and strip searches in 1965, and their fears weren't unsubstantiated. That same year, 18-year-old writer Andrea Dworkin was arrested outside the United Nations building in New York. Dworkin was protesting the Vietnam War when she was arrested. Police sent her to the New York Women's House of Detention, known for housing leftist women. Dworkin was subjected to a strip search, followed by a gynecological exam from two male doctors so violent that she bled for days afterward. Not one to stay quiet or take abuse, Dworkin wrote to the Commissioner of Corrections. She'd been arrested for protesting, yet she'd been forcibly examined under the Family Plan Act. After her release, Dworkin testified about her treatment and assault at the facility before a grand jury. Unfortunately, the court refused to make an indictment. The trial made both national and international news. Dworkin's case caused outrage. In San Francisco, a former sex worker and activist banded with an ACLU lawyer to challenge how arrests were made in California. The Court of Appeals ruled that Oakland police officers would have to quarantine men during prostitution arrests, too. Instead, prostitution arrests declined sharply. By the 1970s, the Chamberlain-Khan Act, also known as the American Plan, had lost many of its supporters, and the government passed amendments redirecting the law away from sex workers, real or imagined, and towards education and vaccination. However, the law remains active to this day. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year 
equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Advice on birth control has been around for millennia. In the first century CE, philosopher Pliny the Elder advised men to pull out before climax. And in a time when we have more reliable methods of preventing pregnancy, it's advice some groups still give. Reliable birth control is relatively new when you consider human evolution. But practices ranging from abstinence to more unorthodox methods have always been discussed. Egyptian women around 1500 BCE mixed a thick paste of honey, sodium carbonate, and crocodile dung as a spermicide. And while crocodile dung may have actually increased their chances of pregnancy by altering their pH levels, other solutions directly impacted women's lives or health. Uh, some rather bizarre methods may have actually worked to some degree. Acacia gum, for instance, was later found to have some spermicidal properties. Uh, fast forward to 1839, when Charles Goodyear discovered a way of treating rubber, which led to the first rubber condom in 1855. Uh, given their size and the need for a custom fitting, uh, rubber condoms weren't exactly popular, especially in the United States. And while preventing pregnancy has long been part of human history, there have also been those who believed that discussing sex, much less birth control, was a serious morality issue. Anthony Comstock made it his mission to do what he considered to uphold Christian morality when he spearheaded the Comstock Act in 1873, which censored everyone, including doctors, from discussing birth control. Margaret Sanger, a nurse and activist, defied the act and began offering advice on birth control in the 20th century. Her pamphlets quickly landed her in arrest and indictment for breaching obscenity laws. For a while, Sanger fled the country to avoid trial, eventually returning in 1916. She opened a family planning clinic, the first of its kind, though officials shut it down in less than two weeks. Undeterred, Sanger formed the Birth Control League, which would later be rebranded the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Sanger's work led her to biologist Gregory Goodwin Pincus in 1950. 
Pincus had recently lost his job at Harvard. Sanger approached him with a job offer to help her create a pill women could take to prevent pregnancy. 30 states still enforced anti-birth control laws, so the proposition was controversial, if not risky. For Sanger, the partnership was a means to give women some control in family planning and autonomy over their bodies. She also did, at least partially, align herself with at least part of the eugenics movement, specifically limiting reproduction in people with mental and physical disabilities or those living in poverty. A wealthy philanthropist by the name of Catherine Dexter McCormick funded the project. Sanger and Pincus teamed up with obstetrician John Rock. The three tested the effects of progesterone on rabbits and rats. Pincus took it a step further, though. He suggested they take their discovery and experiment to Puerto Rico, where laws were a bit more lax. Puerto Rico had authorized family planning clinics and had encouraged contraception practices since 1937. Probably due to the aforementioned eugenics, the government there took the practice to extremes, often pressuring women to have a hysterectomy after the birth of their second child. The governor believed that the poor were ignorant and couldn't control themselves. Pincus, Rock, and Sanger set up a clinical trial, recruiting women from a local medical university in 1955. Half the women quickly dropped out, fearing potential side effects. Pincus decided on a different approach, this time recruiting poor women who were desperate to prevent pregnancy or hysterectomies. The group set up a lab in the Rio Pietas neighborhood in San Juan. 265 women signed up for the trial. None were given safety information regarding potential side effects such as blood clots, depression, or nausea. Pincus focused on efficiency over potential side effects. Three women died during the trial. No autopsies were performed, so it's unclear whether the fatalities were related to the pill. The FDA approved the pill for contraception prevention on May 9th of 1960. The pill remained controversial, but by 1965, it became the most widely used form of birth control, putting women in control of their fertility. Today, safer reformulations lessen the side effects, while offering 99% efficiency. However, in 2022, many political leaders voted against a rule to prevent states from banning a woman's right to birth control. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.